0: Well, good morning and uh, welcome to our time together as we study the Word of God. Let's begin our time this morning in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, a day in which we can gather in this unorthodox way, being gathered together by your providence and by your care for your people. We thank you for uh, the ability to do this, and we thank you that we have your word, that we can study it together. Lord, we would ask that you would attend to this time, that you would give us the ability to understand, illumine our hearts and our minds, a willingness to submit, a desire to uh, see you, glorified in all things. And encourage us, Lord, strengthen us and encourage us as we walk through these uncertain times and as we work to reflect the glory and wonder of Jesus Christ and the gospel in our lives. And as we serve you, may you be that which is seen in us so that the world around us would know who you are, acknowledge their sin, turn from it, and embrace Jesus Christ as our Savior. That's the purpose. And so we ask for you to attend to these times, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'll ask you to take your Bibles with me this morning and turn in them to our study of Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. We have already been in this passage for several weeks as Fellowship Bible Church together, and as you know, we have been discussing the necessity of our Christian behavior and its effects upon all of life, but particularly its effects upon the gospel as it is seen, as the gospel is seen through how we live. In other words, when we think about it, we can think of it this way. There are moral implications for our lives as Christians. There are moral implications for our lives as Christians. This is a concern for the Apostle Paul as he writes to these believers in Rome and to us. How we live has an impact upon others. Why? Because others see how we live. In other words, the justification that we have in Christ, as we heard about back in Romans chapter 5, the justification that we have received through faith in Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the gift of God to be justified before God, means less if our lives are not reflecting the reality of our justification in how we live. We could even say it this way. Without a change in living, our profession of faith is suspect. Without a change in how we live, how we practice our daily lives, then the profession of our faith to know Jesus Christ is suspect. In fact, we saw this truth last Lord's Day as we looked at Matthew chapter 7 on Resurrection Sunday. We saw how it is that we could identify those who were false or false teachers, as Jesus was identifying them in Matthew chapter seven. It said that we would know them or could know them. How we could know them by their fruit. In other words, we can identify the trueness of their words, the trueness of their profession, the trueness of their teaching by how they live their fruit. That's the very same principle with each and every Christian. Our lives are to be different than they were when we lived without knowing Jesus Christ as our Savior. As Christians, we are to be living by the principles, we are to be living by the truths, by the commandments of Jesus Christ in the Scripture. And this is what Paul has been exhorting all of us who profess faith in Jesus Christ. He has been exhorting us about this all the way since chapter 12 and verse 1 and 2. And he will continue to do that all the way through chapter 15 of this great epistle. If you think about it, chapter 12 to chapter 15, that's thats four chapters. There's only 16 chapters as we have it divided up in our New Testament. So 25% of the entire epistle is about the topic of Christian behavior. That's extremely important. So let's begin our time this morning by having me read for us from Romans chapter 13 and verses 11 to 14. Romans chapter 13 verses 11 to 14. The Apostle Paul says, and do this, knowing the time, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone, and the day is at hand." Let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Let me start this morning by asking all of us a question. Have you ever shown up for something that you were responsible to be prepared for, but you were completely unprepared? As a preacher of the Word of God, over the years many have asked me how I can continually be ready week in and week out to teach. And some of us might think that what motivates me in those moments is the reality that this is my job. That's how some would describe this, that it's my job. But I want to let you in on a little secret about pastoral ministry, at least for me, And I want you to know that this being my weekly task, if you will, part of my weekly task is not what motivates me in this task. One of the things that motivates me to be ready each and every week is a healthy fear of having to preach unprepared, fear of not being prepared. And all of you who are part of the church, you show up. And you give your time to come and are ready to listen, and you have an expectation, and yet I'm not prepared for the moment. There's a fear of not being prepared that's one of the motivators in me. And yet, yet, none of that will compare, and none of that really does compare at all to the sense that all of us will have if, when Jesus Christ returns, we are living as if we are not prepared for it. In other words, behaving in ways that are not as he desires. You see, beloved, the sense of fear that we may get from not being ready for something here on this earth that we might have responsibility for like me preaching, will, will pale in comparison to the shock that we will sense if, when Jesus Christ arrives, we are living as if we are not saved at all. If we, as professing Christians, are living in such a way that doesn't reflect the character the nature of Jesus Christ and the glorious gospel that saves. And this is the import of the words of the Apostle Paul here at the end of chapter 13. The idea that each and every Christian would be living in a state of obedient readiness. In other words, that we would live in a state of obedience because we know that Christ is returning at any moment. So the great motivator for our Christian behavior, as we said probably four weeks ago, is and should be actually the doctrine of eschatology, the doctrine of last things, the doctrine of the Reality of the return of Jesus Christ. Remember what Paul says here in verse 11, and do this knowing the time. One of the most important things that we need to remember about the time that the Apostle Paul is referring to is that it is the time of the return of Christ. And we are living right now, right here in our day in the final time before return. We are closer today than we were yesterday. We are closer this week than we were last week. And if the Lord should tarry and not come today, we will be closer tomorrow than we are today. And we know the truth and we know a truth that others do not know. We know because we are Christians by faith in Christ. That According to God's ultimate redemptive plan, Jesus Christ is coming back at any moment. And so it is in light of that knowledge that we Christians are to be living differently. It's in light of the reality that we know that Christ is coming, that we ought to be living now as if he's coming now, because he could be coming now. We know the time. We do not know the date, we do not know the hour, but we know that we are living in the time before the imminent return of Christ. And so, if the greatest event of all time is to come at any time... A time when no one knows, as Jesus told the disciples, only the Father. No one knows the specifics. And we Christians have an intimate knowledge of that redemptive event in the ultimate redemptive time plan of God. We know that. And that it can happen at any moment. If that great event is in any time, any moment event, then how should we be living right now? Notice how Paul puts this in the final section. Notice what he says here in verse 12. The night is almost gone. The day is at hand. We saw this two weeks ago, but it's good by way of reminder to stir you up again. As Peter says in his epistle, the terms that Paul uses to describe how it is that some Christians are living. You notice in verse 11, he begins it, the hour for you to awaken from sleep, right? Knowing the time, it's already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. This is included in this moment, that salvation is nearer to you than when you first believed. He, he seems to be, be indicating this reality of a spiritual lethargy in us, an innate reality by which we just go on as if nothing is going to happen. He says, it's already the hour for you to awaken. Salvation for you is nearer. The night is almost gone. The day is at hand. So he's referring to this spiritual stupor that we live in. It's a stupor in the idea and thinking that is if Christ is not coming until later. He's referring to our mental state, the very reality of what drives us. In fact, that's what he's been driving at ever since chapter 12 and verses 1 and 2, right? We are to renew our mind. Or to have our thinking changed or have our thinking renovated. As if we're we're living in this mental state oftentimes, living in such a way as if we're unaware of what is happening around us or what is to come. We're spiritually asleep. We live as if the coming of Christ is is an event that's far away. It's good that I have my insurance policy packed in my pocket. I know Jesus Christ, I say I believe in Him, but I'll go on living any way I want. It's as if you do know the exact time and day you live as if you do know that, when in fact you do not. I asked this question last time, I'll ask it again. How alert is a person when they're sleeping? They're not alert at all. They're not aware of what's happening around them at all. Why? Because they are asleep. They're incoherent to the physical realities of what's going on, and so too it is. when we as Christians are living as we did before professing faith in Christ, if we are living like we used to live, before we profess faith in Christ, then we are living as if we are spiritually asleep. We're living in a state of being unaware that Christ could come back at any time. And we live. Unlike we ought to live, but Paul says those unaware days, those sleep days are over. the night's gone. The day is at hand. In other words, when you believed in Jesus Christ, when God justified you and gave you His Spirit to indwell you, then He gave you the power to overcome the desires and the impulses of the flesh. He empowered you to live an awake life. He has empowered you to be obedient. That's the implication. He has awakened you. the words of the Apostle Paul, It is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. Stop hitting the spiritual snooze button. Stop rolling over in your Christian life and in your obedience to God and saying, I'll get to it tomorrow. I'll get to it in a while. Paul says, no, do this. Live out your Christian obedience. Be the living sacrifice to God as he exhorted us in chapter 12 and verse 1. In light of knowing that the day of Christ is coming and it's imminent. It's time to wake up. It's time to stop being spiritually lethargic. It's time for us as Christians. It's time that all of us realize that our salvation is nearer today than when we first believed. Some of us might think this is Pretty direct, pretty straightforward words from the Apostle Paul. But listen to the words of John, the Apostle John, in his first epistle. First John 2, beginning in verse 26, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. John says, I, I write because there's others out there who are going to say different things, they're going to talk in different ways. Mm, kind of like what we heard from Jesus in Matthew chapter 7. Beware of the false teachers. I, I write to you so that you... You'll beware of these deceivers, these false teachers, but the anointing that you receive from him, from Christ abides in you. That's the spirit, right? We have the spirit of God who abides in us and you have no need for anyone to teach you. In other words, you know, truth. Now you have the spirit in you. He leads you in truth. You, you have the ability to understand the word of God by the power of the spirit, but As his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. In other words, the word taught equals the idea of knowing. 1 John 2, 28. And now, little children, abide in him. Who abide in Jesus Christ, remain in him. That's the word meno, remain, abide, so that what? So that, here's the point. Here's the purpose. Abide in him so that when he appears, that's his coming, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. You see, there's John's point. Look, you want to live obediently. You want to abide in Him. You want to walk as He walks so that when Christ returns, there's no shame. You have confidence that He's when He comes, oh, there's my Lord. I'll run to Him. You have confidence. Oh, I I don't want to run. He caught me in this moment when I'm doing this sinful thing. I, I don't want to do that. You know that he is righteous, John says, 1 John 2 29. If you know that he's righteous, you can be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Listen, there ought to be nothing more frightening to us as Christians than to be unprepared when Christ returns. Nothing more frightening. Are we living? In readiness for that moment that 's the question we ought to be asking ourselves as we begin our time this morning. Are we living in readiness for that moment because we do this knowing the time We cannot live as if it 's going to come later. We cannot live as Christians as if the the return of christ is is tomorrow or a week from now or four days from now or a month from now or a year from now or a millennia from now. Because that is to live in such a way that our life is saying that what God says is a lie. Because God says no one knows. We cannot wait until tomorrow to be obedient Christians. I love how Charles Haddon Spurgeon said it years ago. Tomorrow is the devil's day. Today is the Lord's. Tomorrow's the devil's day. So I ask this question again. Are we living prepared for his return? Are we living today prepared for the return of Christ? If you're sitting there this morning and you're thinking about this in your own heart, there are certainly ways in which you're going, man, I really need to think about this better. I need to think about it each and every moment that I wake up. I need to think about this each and every day that I'm walking. I need to think about this each and every time I'm talking with words. I need to think about this each and every time I turn on the electronic device, I tune into electronic moment or whatever it is. I need to think about this because there's a war going on in my mind. There's a battle, as Paul said in Romans chapter 7. There's this war going on between what I want to do and what my flesh wants to do. And there's this war going on and I need to fight that all the time. How are you living? If you're unsaved, what are you waiting for? If you're unsaved, what are you waiting for? Repent and believe. You're not ready. You'll never be ready in and of yourselves. You'll only be ready for judgment because that's what is to come. Walk by faith in Christ and be ready for His return and if you're saved, ask yourself the question, how am I living? How am I living right now, right in this moment, right as we sit here today, right as we open the word of God, how am I living? And so Paul says, live in light of knowing that Christ is coming, live in light of of knowing that Christ is coming we 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 said it this way, just as a as something that's easy for us to remember. redeem the time, redeem the time, and we heard last time that we were uh in Romans chapter thirteen the second principle that we laid out one was redeem the time, second was put off the flesh right. In other words, redeeming the time is seen first by putting off the deeds of the flesh. Notice the second part of verse 12. Let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness. Let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness. That's what Paul calls them, the deeds of darkness. Why? Because darkness is a term that describes the wickedness of the unsaved world or the sinful realm if you will. It's not it's not physical darkness as in we see night and day, although it's representative in that kind of way. Darkness, he he means the the sinfulness of the world, the sinfulness of the flesh, the the worldly system around us, the deeds of the flesh are described as the improper behavior the the things of the world and we'll notice them there in verse 13 or at least in a in a, a larger contextual way in verse 13 we'll talk about that in a moment and you get the idea when you look ahead at verse 13 that what paul is giving there we we don't want to get the idea in our mind that paul is giving us some kind of exhaustive list of things and that these sinful practices that he lists there in verse 13 those six terms, we don't want to get the idea that those are the only kinds of behavior that reflect improper behavior. They're not. It's not an exhaustive list by any stretch of the imagination. That is not what Paul is saying. Paul is simply giving a representation of the whole spectrum of the deeds of darkness, the whole spectrum of sinful actions. So we cannot be those people who look at a passage like this, and assume that Paul is only speaking to a certain group of Christians that sin in those kinds of ways. He's not saying that this might be you. He's not saying to the people in Rome, these Christians in Rome, "Uh, this might be what you're doing if by some slim chance you at some time in your past or in your day could have possibly been like this. No. This is representative of any kind of sinful activity. And I I hope to maybe show us that in a better way here in just a moment. But the assumption here is that every Christian, each and every one of us who professes to know Jesus Christ by faith, each and every one of us who are Christians needs to take a personal inventory of how we are living. Why? Because deeds of darkness is being conformed to the ways of this world. That's what he really means. Deeds of darkness. When he says, lay aside the deeds of darkness, he's talking about the conformity to the ways of this world, which he said in chapter 12, verse 2, do not be conformed. Do not be conformed to this world. He could have written deeds of darkness there. Do not be conformed to the deeds of darkness. It's the same thing. Similar idea. But what's he say? Put on the armor of light. Put off the deeds of darkness, but put on the deeds or the armor of light. Light exposes. Darkness hides. I was doing a project at my house this week, and I was back in the into a closet area, and there's no light in there, and I was under something, and I needed a light, and I I pulled out a flashlight. My phone had a flashlight on. I pulled it out lit it up. The light exposed everything. I could see. It made it so much easier. Light exposes. Darkness hides. God is light, it says in 1 John. Put on the armor of God. Put on the armor of light. God is light. Sounds very familiar, doesn't it? Now, the word here that Paul uses is not the same word that we think of, or it's not the same word that Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 6, the word for armor, right? There it's speaking of every aspect of those things that will protect us in the war against the flesh. Ephesians chapter 6. That Paul's talking about the, the armament, the whole armament of us. Here, his emphasis is on, on a on a weapon, if you will, when he speaks of armor, it's your weapon. You, you could speak of the whole armament with with the word Paul uses in Ephesians six. And here, the word hoplon really speaks of the the a, a single weapon within that armament, and it's still described by the word armor. So hoplon is used in here in Romans chapter thirteen, but Panop. Panoplia is used in Ephesians chapter 6. And so I I want to go over there for a moment this morning to Ephesians chapter 6. Because I I want to get some practical help out of Ephesians chapter 6 on this whole idea of armor. You notice in Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10, we, we have this exhortation from Paul. Right. Finally, be strong in the Lord, verse 10 of chapter 6 in Ephesians, and in the strength of his might. Put on the full panoplia, that's the word, full armor of God, so that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. So against worldliness, against wickedness, against darkness, against this whole idea of sinful realm. Why? Because our struggle is not against flesh and blood. We think, oh, this is where we battle, but that's not the real reality of the battle. The battle is against powers and rulers and world forces of this darkness. You see, there's the idea again all these satanic realities against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Why can Paul describe it that way, even though we live here and now, and it's a sinful flesh? Because the sin of our old self loves Satan's realm. Remember in Ephesians chapter 2, he said, we were instruments of wrath. We were those who were under the prince of the power of the air, the one who works in the sons of disobedience. We were like that, but we're not like that now. And so we've been equipped by the Spirit, but all of this is our armor here in Ephesians chapter 6. So take up, he says, verse 13, the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day. He's not talking necessarily about a specific moment in which somebody demonize or whatever. He's just talking about the everyday realities of life where there's wickedness and things coming against us all the time. I woke up this morning. I said to the elders this morning, Satan loves Sunday. That sounds strange, but he loves Sunday. Why? Because all of us Christians are getting ready to go and worship our Savior, and Satan is stirring it up, and the flesh loves the stirrup, and the flesh loves those things, and so we we have to battle against the flesh. And it seems like Sundays are so difficult. Resist, he says. Put on the full armor of God that you might be able to resist. Now, what is these pieces of God's armor? The only way to stand firm here in verses 14 through 20. Well, first you have truth. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. Truth. Have your mind tied up with God's word, know the truth. Be saturated in the truth. Have your mind saturated in the truth. This is a preparedness reality. You don't go to war unprepared. This is the whole idea. If you're going to go to battle, you need to be prepared. You need to be just as prepared for every day's warfare as you need to be prepared for when the Lord returns. Truth. Truth is the thing that will prepare you. Have your mind tied up with truth. And then he says, notice in the second part of that verse, your loin or, uh, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, right? This is the practical reality. This is obedience. This is, this is have your life conform to the truth that you know, to the truth that you've saturated yourself with. Have your life conform to that righteousness, right living, be like Christ. And verse 15 third with that you you know the truth you're saturated the truth you're living the truth and that have sh- having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace this is this is now you know the truth you're living the truth and you're you're, you're assured in your life because you're obedient to God and now you're walking out that truth with the gospel message you are Always to be ready to share the gospel, the power of God, right? Peter said, always be ready to give a reason for the hope that lies within you. Well, if you're not living for Christ, if you don't know the truth, and you're not living for the truth, what hope do you have? You're going to carry your life about as if there's no hope at all. And yet here we're to walk in the power of God. We're to walk in the power of the gospel, right? Paul said that, It's the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. That's how we walk. How do we do that walking? Well, we walk by, verse 16, faith. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, right? Which, Which you'll be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one. It's faith. We trust God. We trust God in the process, right? I said this morning, you wake up and it seems like all the irritants and all the struggles of the day on Sunday, because Satan loves Sunday, he wants to... He wants to stir us up. He can't take us out of the kingdom of God, but he can sure work to trip us up in the kingdom of God. And so he wants to do that. Well, we just trust God in the process. We trust God. We trust what his word says. The world says it doesn't make sense. Look at all those weirdos doing all that, following what they should be doing. And we don't want that. Well, we do. We want to follow what God says, And so we walk by faith. We trust God. And then he says, notice verse 17, and take up the helmet of salvation. That's secure. That's having a security, knowing nothing can remove you. That's a faith issue, right? We trust God. We know that because of who God is, that God is faithful, that God said it, that what Jesus Christ said, nothing can snatch you out of my father's hand in John 10. Listen, he has given us a security by way of salvation that we are secure in that. And so we walk by that. That's the helmet. It protects the very essence of our... If in a wartime, that's a very important part. You want a helmet. You want a helmet because the bullets are flying. And then he says in verse 17, and the sword of the spirit, that's the word of God. It's the only weapon against others. It's the only weapon we have. We don't have any other personal weapons. We don't have any other good argumentation. We don't have any answers for anything. This is a a close combat weapon. It's the word of God. Is it any wonder that we need to know the truth? Girded in our loins with truth. This is that close combat weapon, the word of God. And then he says, in the seventh one, pray. Verse 18, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. With this in view, be on alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints, prayer, petition, continually go to God, seek guidance from the commander. That's the idea. And then notice what he says at the very end, verses 18, pray on my behalf with utterance may be given to me and open that I might open my mouth to make known with boldness, the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Now he says, be vigilant always, right? Be vigilant always, remain alert always, never let your guard down. That's the idea. Paul said, don't let your guard down. Right? Don't let it down. Always be ready. Be alert, he says at the end of verse 18. Be alert. Be ready. Why? Because Satan's always working. Your flesh is always desiring sinful things. And Christ is coming. Christ is coming. You remember what the Apostle Paul said to the Thessalonian believers? 1 Thessalonians five eight. Here's what he said. But since we are of the day, since we are of the day, he's talking to Christians. We are of the day. We're not of the night anymore. That's Satan's realm. We are of the day. Let us then be sober. That means uh, self-controlled in our right mind, thoughtful, all these things that the armor of God gives us. Let us be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. So Paul uses, once again, this armor imagery to exhort the Thessalonian believers to live rightly. Now, there are implications for not having your armor on. Implications, Paul, Paul, of course, is condensing those in Romans chapter 13. Even here, we can get some implications from Ephesians chapter 6, right? We're unprepared. One of the implications of not having your armor on is you're unprepared for war. You're unprepared for the onslaught that's coming your way. And having partial armor on isn't enough. That's going to only leave open vulnerabilities. So you're unprepared without armor. And you also have a lack of joy. Why? Because of disobedience. There's no joy in your life. There's no desire and joy and exuberance of walking rightly. You know that if Christ returned today, you're walking in obedience. And so you can, you can live without shame and without this, this in, go to him in confidence. But if you're living disobediently, there's no joy. You don't want Christ to return. So there's no assurance, no joy, no assurance of peace, no trust, no faith. You're what you're walking by your own mindset and you're discouraged Paul says, look, put on the armor of God. Go back to Romans chapter 13. Put on the armor of light. Put on the armor of light. So here's what Paul is saying to us. Since we know that Christ is coming at any time, and since we have all that we need, Ephesians chapter 6, for battling against the temptations and the deeds of darkness, since we have all that, Notice what he says in verse 13 of chapter 13 of Romans. Let us behave properly as in the day. Let us behave properly as in the day. So let us therefore, verse 12, let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness and let us put on the armor of light and let us behave properly. You see, there's the outworking. There's the outworking of the put off, put on principle. It's the outworking of behavior, the outworking of doing the right thing. In other words, every day, live in the same way that you live in the kingdom of God. Live as a kingdom citizen. Behave, it says. That's, that's carry your life about. That's, that's the idea. It's similar to the idea of walk, when we hear of walk this way, when Paul says, uh, Don't walk like the Gentiles walk. This is the idea of carry your life. Behave as in the day, he says. As in the day. What day? The day of the kingdom. The day when Christ returns. When you'll be with Christ. Walk here and now, right now, as if you're walking in the actual kingdom of God. Now, Paul lists this by listing three areas of which we can work at this. Three areas, which we can work at this. And he lists them here in verse 13. There's three, three pairs of twos, if you will. Right. The first one is this area of Christian liberty. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to put labels on these and then we'll walk through them quickly. Christian liberty, that's carousing and drunkenness. Second is Christian purity, which is sexual promiscuity and sensuality. And third is Christian humility, strife, and jealousy. So you have Christian liberty, Christian purity, and Christian humility. So let's notice the first one, Christian liberty. Paul says, let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness. Now, for those of us who may have not been here with Fellowship Bible Church when we studied through 1 Corinthians, we learned much about how we are to exercise our christian liberties that we are in fact indeed our brother's keeper we are that and in that study we uh, we were inundated with a whole host of principles concerning Christian liberties. And in this study, we are going to be inundated with a whole host of areas where some people might call them gray areas in chapter 14. All these areas that we like to think about and go, what am I supposed to do when? What am I supposed to do when? How am I supposed to act when? Right? But suffice it to say here that our Christian liberties, particularly the drinking of alcohol, can have a huge ramification on our testimonies as individual Christians, as well as our testimony collectively as a church. We are not to be carrying ourselves in carousing and drunkenness. This is a Christian liberty reality. And carousing and drunkenness aren't specifically necessarily speaking only of alcohol, but but this idea of party life. This idea of, of exuberant party living. Now, we can easily look at that and think about that as Christians and say, well, I don't do that, and probably so, and it's a good thing. But carousing simply means this in a word, letting loose, just letting loose. Have you ever described your activity in those terms? Whatever it is you're doing, ah, oh, we're just letting loose. Well, we're just, we're just letting loose. We're just having a good time, whatever it is we're doing. Listen, we need to remember that the truth involved with Christian liberties is not what do I have the freedom to do, right? That's like asking the question, how close to the edge can I get? Uh, we would never ask that standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon, how close to the edge can I get before I fall off? We'd never ask that question. We'd stay a clear distance back because we don't want to fall off. But yet it seems like when we come to our Christian liberties, when we come to life, we say, okay, what do I have the freedom to do? What do I have the freedom to do? But rather we should be saying with our Christian liberties, what do I have the freedom to forego? What do I have the freedom to not do so that my weaker brothers and sisters in Christ are not led into sin? That's the question we really need to be asking ourselves. And that's the first area that Paul is dealing with here, this whole idea of Christian liberties. When it comes to, to this readiness, when it comes to behaving rightly, we need to think about that in our lives. How am I living in my Christian liberties? Am I living and asking the question, how close to the line can I get? Or am I asking the question, what do I have the liberty to not do so that I can not cause someone else to stumble? That's the first area to check. See if you're walking in the light. See if you're walking in your behavior in the light in that area in your Christian liberties. And the second is this, the area of Christian purity. Christian purity. He says, let us behave properly as in the day. And then he gives that first category, not in carousing and drunkenness. And then he gives the second one, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality one person put it this way, and I don't know exactly who said it first, but, but it's a correct axiom for life, and I, and I like the way it's said. Here's what it says. You are only as spiritual as you will ever be when you're by yourself. You're only as spiritual as you're, you will ever be when you're by yourself. In other words, when you are around others, when you're in a group of people it's easy to be something that you're not when you're by yourself privately. We believers, I believe in our day and age that we, and that and, and where this truth is most revealing is when we ask the question, what are we doing when we're alone? What are we doing when we're alone? Most, if not all of us, I think, would say, well, I'm a one-woman man or I'm a one-man woman if I'm in some kind of relationship, in, the, in a marriage relationship, that that's all that I'm dedicated to. But I would ask this question, can we say that when it comes to how we use our eyes? Can we we honestly, before Christ, in the presence of Christ, say that when we think about what we've allowed through our eyes, into our mind, and our heart while watching TV? How long do we linger while watching a movie? How long do we linger on those sensual and sexually promiscuous scenes and situations that come across The screens at us, both in movies and in TV, what kind of pictures, what kind of scenes, what kind of language have we allowed ourselves to come and to be so comfortable with that we don't even call it into question? How do we use our computer and our electronic devices when we're by ourselves? Great privilege to have it. It's a great tool for us to to get quick information, to to have a Bible ready for us right there on the moment, to to be in, in remote places and to be able to have all the tools that we need for learning the Word of God. But is that what we're using it for? Or are we spending our time scrolling through pages of pages of frivolous information and frivolous documents and frivolous readings and blog pages and all kinds of other nonsense that are not edifying us at all. How do we use our computer and electronic devices, especially in this area of sexual purity? Listen to what the apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter five, verses three to five. He says, but immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you. You see, Paul begins that, passage by, by saying, listen, it isn't that, oops, I did that. It's It shouldn't even be named among you. We should be working for that that would be the goal for our private lives and our public lives, that it wouldn't even be named among us. If someone did an investigation, if someone dug up all the dirt, if someone went into the background and looked at all the issues, what's there? Is it going to be named among us? It shouldn't even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Ephesians 5.3. And the next verse says there must be no filthiness or silly talk. No coarse jesting, which is not fitting. You see, it isn't that, oh yeah, well, okay, we do that, but I don't, I don't do that a lot or that's not my habit. The issue is, <clears throat> is it fitting is it fitting? Uh, again, is it the right thing? Should I be doing that? I'd rather be giving thanks. And he says in verse 5 of that same chapter in Ephesians 5 For this you know with certainty. Here's something else we know. We know Christ is coming. And this, Paul says, we know with certainty. If you know Jesus Christ, this is a truth you know with certainty. What truth is that? That no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Those are some pretty sharp words. That's a pretty narrow road, as Jesus put it in Matthew 7. That's a very fine line. It's not perfection, this side of heaven, by way of our activity, but it certainly is direction. What we say with our mouth, it must be and ought to be reflected in our lives. And if it's not, just like I said at the beginning, then our profession is suspect because no immoral or impure or covetous man or idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. We know that with certainty. So, if others were with us, if others were sitting in the room with us, would those terms, immoral, impure, greedy, would those terms actually be describing us? So, how is your Christian purity? How is your Christian purity? You see, it can be extremely subtle. It usually is usually is what does God think of it? What does God think of you when you're by yourself? He's watching. He's watching. And what we are doing, he knows are we prepared for Christ's return? Paul says, let us behave properly as in the day. Let our behavior be shown forth in our Christian liberty. Let it be shown forth in our Christian purity. And then lastly, he says here in verse 13, and not in strife and jealousy. This is Christian humility, Christian humility, Because fighting and backbiting and grudge holding and bitterness of heart, those are all aspects of strife and jealousy. All of those are born in the same place. What place is that? Pride. Strife and jealousy are all born in pride. The idea that I'm better than you, that I'm better than you. It's a lack of humility, lack of humility. James said in James chapter 3, verse 14 through 16, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't be arrogant. <laughs> not funny? If you have selfish ambition and bitterness, bitter jealousy in your heart, don't be prideful. That's what he's saying. Don't be prideful. You're being prideful, and so lie against the truth. The truth is, that's what it is. It's just the expression of ultimate pride coming out, and you like to disguise it under all kinds of pretty terms, but you're prideful. This wisdom, he says, is not that which comes down from above. It's earthly, it's natural, demonic. Where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing you can be rest assured of this. A church that is filled with strife is a church that will soon be filled with people splitting from each other. Why? Because the only thing inside that church is arrogance. No humility at all. That's why Paul could say so powerfully to the Philippian believers in Philippians chapter two, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Don't do anything from selfishness. Don't do anything out of pride. Don't let that be the motivator. But what? With humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. That's the attitude. That's the attitude. You want to kill strife? You want to kill jealousy? Then be humble. When we're humble, guess what? We're most like Christ. Because that's exactly what Christ was. Is there any wonder that the Apostle Paul would end this chapter with these words? Verse 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ, put on, I love that word. It, it, the word carries the idea of sink into, sink into. Now I know we live here in a cold climate. We get cold winters. There's nothing like sinking into a warm blanket with a hot cup of coffee or something in your hand. It's just a good feeling. Let me ask you, let me ask you this question. Do you have a favorite piece of clothing that you enjoy? I do. I do. It's so comfortable to wear. It's just a piece, you know, you got, you got a whole closet full of clothes and shirts and whatever it is, drawers full of stuff. I know you ladies know what I'm talking about. You got, got things, men, you have things, but you always seem to gravitate to the favorite, to the one that's most comfortable. That's what Paul's ending with here. He says, let Christ and his character be your favorite garment. Let Christ and his character be what you sink into. And don't look for ways to fulfill the desires of the flesh. Don't look for ways to fulfill the darkness. That's what provision means. It's forethought. It means having forethought about it. Don't Don't think of ways to, to fulfill the desires that your flesh has. No, sink into Christ. That's what we do sometimes. This is why we, we have such a hard time. We're, we're thinking ahead of ways that we're going to fulfill the lusts. Paul says, don't live like that. That's the way you used to live. That's the way the unsaved world lives. But now you live. You're in Christ. You live for Christ. You're to reflect Christ in your behavior because He's made you new. You have a renewed mind. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Or verse two, you you have a mind that's not being conformed to the world. It's being renewed, renewed by the truth, renewed by biblical saturation, renewed by all the things that you learn from the Word of God, and you know that He's coming at any moment. So Paul says, "Are you prepared? Are you prepared? Are you living?" Prepared for his coming. Could be today. Could be in this moment. If we're thinking rightly and we're thinking to ourselves, man, I got some work to do, there's some Christian liberty areas that I need to to shore up. I've been thinking wrongly about those. I've been thinking of my Christian liberties and ways of, of what I can do rather than what I had the freedom to not do for the sake of others. Maybe there's some issues of purity that I need to shore up. Maybe I need to, to turn off that computer. Maybe I need to not go to that web page. Maybe I need to Limit my time in front of the TV. Maybe I need to rethink the kind of movies that I watch. Whatever that is, I, I need to rethink those things. Maybe I need to rethink the relationship that I'm in. Maybe I need to rethink the person that I'm pursuing because they don't know Jesus Christ, and I I claim to know Jesus Christ, and yet I I seem to convince myself and tell myself I'm happy with pursuing that kind of thing. Maybe I need to change that thing in my mind, in my thinking, because the Word of God doesn't want me to go there. Maybe I've just been bitter in my heart against somebody. Maybe there's some bitterness within me that I haven't relinquished. Maybe there's some areas of my life where there's strife and I'm jealous of other people. And I thought I should get that, but I didn't get it. And somebody else, I got overlooked and somebody else who's under me, surely they're under me. And so I'm jealous and I'm bitter got some things I need to do. I got some confession I need to make. I get some repenting I need to do. I get some obedience that I need to shore up in my life. Each and every one of us has areas. Each and every one of us has areas where we need to repent, where we need to walk in the armor of light. This is our challenge. This is our exhortation. This is the, the foundational groundstone, if you will, to entering into chapter 14 and 15, where we're going to hear all kinds of areas. We say, well, that's a gray area. What am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to walk through that? Well, we're going to get some instruction about that in the weeks to come, and it's going to be wonderful for us if we'll just simply submit to that. Encouraged by what the Lord is saying to us, challenged by what God is doing in and through us as we adorn the gospel, renewing our minds, unconformed to the ways of the world so that Christ would be honored and glorified in us. What a privilege, what a joy. And so I'll ask you to bow or in a word of prayer with me as we close our time. Father, we thank you that these words of yours, we trust Lord, they have been well-driven nails in the heart of, that they have challenged us in the proper places that your wisdom is embraced in our heart and mind is now our wisdom that we put off the things of the world, put on the armor of light that we saturate our mind with the truth, knowing and being ready for and being prepared for that day. When you come and Lord, we can say, as we walk in trusting you trusting you, and walking in obedience to your word, we can say, come, Lord Jesus, come. Well, we want to be with you. We want to see you as you are. And we want this war against the flesh to be over. Lord, we pray. We pray that you would give us strength, encouragement, hope in our time of need, joy in following after what you say and grace to accomplish all that you have given to us in this time. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.